2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Daily Briefing at Real Vision. I'm Andreas Dino, the Senior Editor at Real Vision, sending to you live from Copenhagen, Denmark, Tuesday, the 2nd of August. We've got a bunch of things to unpack in relation to the situation in Taiwan, as well as the major moves that we've seen in financial markets today. And I have a couple of great guests joining me for the next 30 minutes. Firstly, uh, Taylor Fravel, uh, Professor at Political Science uh, and Director of the Security Studies Program at MIT. Welcome, Taylor. It's very good to have you here. Thanks for having me. You'll help us unpack the developments in uh, Taiwan in a second, but also a warm welcome back to the show to you, Tony Greer, the founder of TG Macro. How
1: are you doing, Andreas?
2: Good, Tony. Good to see you. Firstly, Taylor, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Nancy Pelosi basically just landed in Taiwan. Was it a few hours ago? Is this part of a bigger strategy orchestrated by the White House or what's the reason for this visit?
3: No, I don't think it's part of a bigger strategy or, uh, by the White House at all. In fact, for weeks, they very quietly, I think, tried to persuade her uh, not to make this trip because they were worried um, about how China might react and the potential for a crisis across the straits, but um, nevertheless, uh, she is uh, clearly committed to going. Uh, this trip was originally planned for April, but uh, was rescheduled after she came down with COVID. Uh, and uh, as the Speaker of the House, I think she's probably long wanted uh, to make a trip to Taiwan. Uh, depending upon uh, how the elections co- uh, this coming fall in the United States, she may not be Speaker for much longer. And of course, uh, China has featured uh, prominently in her uh, sort of role in Congress, going all the way back to a trip she made. Uh, to Beijing in uh, 1991 in support of the student uh, demonstrators and workers in Tiananmen Square, and so she clearly has strong personal reasons. I think for making this trip, uh, I think she also probably believes that she wants to demonstrate U.S. support for Taiwan, uh, and this would be the opportunity uh, to do so before uh, she stepped down uh, as speaker.
2: Pelosi has basically defied like a load of uh, Chinese warnings ahead of this visit. Should we expect a uh, major response from China to this visit?
3: We should, and we're already seeing it in the military domain. Uh, uh, Literally within moments of her touching down uh, in Taipei, uh, the Xinhua News Agency issued a quote, authoritative release outlining Uh, Six uh, closure areas in which uh, military exercises, including live fire exercises, would be held from the 4th of August to the 7th of August. There are reports last night that 100 uh, Taiwanese firms uh, were sort of barred from exporting um, some goods, some agricultural goods, I believe, in particular from Taiwan. To China. And so clearly, uh, China made threats before that there would be consequences. And now I think it's going to carry through on those threats uh, because of, of the importance that the leadership in Beijing attaches to the issue.
2: Tony, I uh, also uh, wanted to get your take on the market action in relation to this Taiwan story. Uh, what's been on your radar in uh, financial markets today?
1: Um, you know, I feel like the market, Andreas, is more focused on this. Uh, This battle royale right now between, you know, the sort of inflation bulls and the recession bears, if that's fair to say. Right now, when I look at the tape, it looks like they are, you know, tearing each other's arms off and beating each other over the head with them. Today, you know, we had the biggest, all the action today was in the bond market, right? There's a two sigma spike higher in yields um you know really without a corresponding commodity move on the tape which was kind of interesting to me it looks like that could have been somewhat of a blow up or exit trade or something like that um but that does sort of speak to the reflect uh, inflationary action and inflationary vibes that we've been getting from the market right we just went through a week of cpi and ppi where they were both much higher than expected We came for a weekend where the media is still really focused on this, you know, recession that the bond market is pricing in and the administration is trying to redefine. Um, None of that matters. The market is, in fact, pricing in somewhat of a recession. And it feels like it may have overshot a little bit on the downside, Andreas. You know, with this yield move higher today, we had a big move higher and break evens at the end of last week. It looks like the market based inflation expectations may have overshot to the downside. Um, What feels like to me, like there's still a lot of negative sentiment though in the equity market. I feel like everybody on FinTwit is talking about the next shoe to drop. That's not to say that it's not gonna drop. It's just to say that I pick up some bearish sentiment from the internet and that's about it. So today's leadership really isn't anything to get excited about. The S&P started off in the red, rallied into the black, ended up in the red again. Um, the leadership was from, you know, a mixed bag, but mostly from some of the sectors that are down on the year again, cannabis, social media, internet stocks. There were big upside moves in Tilray and Aurora Cannabis and RIG and names like that. You know, the downside was really everything cyclical with an extra focus on home homebuilders. Um, there was a two sigma move lower today in XHB. Um, you know, real big follow through in Pulte Homes after reporting bad news last week, a big reaction to the move higher in rates today. So, Andreas, I really see an ongoing, um, you know, push and pull battle between the inflationary bulls and recessionary bears, if that's fair to say.
2: Absolutely, Tony. And I wanted to get back to you, Taylor, in uh, relation to this uncertainty seen in in financial markets today. We've seen a big increase in interest rates, uh, which is usually a signal that markets are are getting scared of geopolitical risks again. There is this Russian proverb saying that this is China's final warning. Is this one of those cry wolf events again?
3: I don't think it is. Um, I think... Uh, From China's standpoint, uh, they've been uh, increasingly concerned about changes uh, in the U.S. One China policy and policies toward Taiwan in particular. This started uh, sort of the tail end of the Trump administration, but has continued and I think escalated or their concerns have escalated uh, in the Biden administration. And so starting sort of around late last October after Biden made two of of his gaffes on, on Taiwan, uh, Chinese uh, sort of senior leaders began um, talking very explicitly about the United States hollowing out its one China policy. In a phone call in November, Xi Jinping told Biden not to play with fire over Taiwan, something he repeated in their recent call um, just to, I guess, was it last week or the week before last? And so so I think China is being driven by real concerns um, that it sees and thus a need to sort of restore uh, credibility with the United States regarding its own commitment uh, to pursuing what it uh, calls uh, sort of reunification or the unification of Taiwan uh, with the mainland. Um, and I think there's no no foreign policy issue more important for China's leaders than Taiwan uh, in the security area. Certainly, uh, foreign economic uh, policy is very important in terms of welfare overall. But in terms of security issues, right, this is it. This is This is what they care more about than any other any other foreign policy issue. so I, I don't believe they're crying wolves. Um, doesn't mean necessarily that, that they are on the cusp of invading either or taking major action but I think they will um, we will see probably over the coming uh, weeks and months uh, a whole series of actions that, that are just beginning with these military exercises designed to underscore uh, China's resolve with respect uh, to Taiwan.
2: I think we can bring up a chart showing these uh, military exercises around Taiwan currently compared to March 1996, um, the Mm. third Taiwan Strait crisis. And it seems like this time, some of the exercises, uh, they actually overlap with uh, Taiwan's territorial waters. Do you see this Mm. as an escalation compared to earlier uh, crisis situations in the Taiwan Strait?
3: I think these exercises have the potential to be much bigger uh, than those that took place in uh, March of 1996, not just because of the overlap uh, with the territorial waters, but simply because of the way in which these closure areas effectively attack Taiwan from the north, the south, the east, and the west. They also target uh, uh, key Chinese ports in the northern and southern parts of the country. One of them is astride the median line and probably the most likely vector of an amphibious assault. And the one to the east is where China has announced that it will conduct conventional uh, missile tests uh, with the prospect for the first time right, that Chinese missiles could fly over uh, Taiwan uh, on their way to landing in this uh, sort of uh, identified zone. They could be launched on other sort of uh, vectors that might not take them over Taiwan, but certainly there's this possibility, especially if they're launched from the short range Kind of ballistic missile units that are immediately sort of off the, or the, on the Chinese coast adjacent uh, to Taiwan. So in that sense, I, I think uh, the scope and scale are probably much larger. The main difference will be that in 1996, apart from the two missile tests and the small uh, black boxes that you see on the chart, uh, the majority of China's response was to simulate an amphibious assault um, along basically the Chinese coast. So it was simulating an assault of. Taiwan, but all the action was taking place basically right off the coast of China. In this case, right, it's going to be mostly air and sea exercises, uh, and they're going to mostly take place right off the coast of Taiwan. So this is a huge uh, difference in terms of of how the exercises are likely uh, to unfold. And again, uh, we have to also remind ourselves that in, in sort of the 1995 and 1996 crisis, which really went from the summer of 95 through March of 96, there are about three or four major exercises. And the map that we're looking at in this chart was only the most, what was the last one of, of those series of exercises. And so I think there's great potential here for these exercises to continue, perhaps through the party Congress, uh, which will be scheduled for some time this fall, especially if China uh, believes uh, that it it has not Reach some modus vivendi with the United States over one China, and that is probably unlikely given sort of the electoral pressures uh, President Biden and the Democrats are going to feel going into the
2: midterms. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's l i b s y n dot com.
2: I wanted to ask you as well whether there are any parallels to the ongoing crisis in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, do you think China will look at the Western willingness to sanction Russia and think twice about these military exercises in Taiwan?
3: I don't think the potential for sanctions along the scope and scale that have been placed on Russia will deter China from conducting these exercises so long as it believes it can do do so without uh, targeting advertently or inadvertently uh, US or Taiwanese assets in the air. In other words, if they can kind of cap the potential for escalation. I think China, of course, pay great has paid great attention to those sanctions um, and has been considering how to probably sanction proof its economy in response. But I, I don't think it would believe these sort of sanctions along such a broad scale would be implemented in response to exercises versus a kinetic use of force that would be intended to basically seize Some or all of uh, Taiwan from the Republic of China, Um, and so in that sense, I don't think the scenarios are quite uh, analogous. um, But but certainly, it has to be a factor in the backs in in the back of the mind of Chinese leaders that were this to escalate, right? There is an economic cost that 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 they could pay, and so I think their approach will be to sort of uh, pursue a Goldilocks strategy, whereby they have a very robust uh, sort of display of military force that foreshadows what could happen in the future without uh, crossing that kinetic line, uh, starting a war, and thus facing uh, the potential brunt of, of sanctions that they might face. Also on sanctions, I would note, um, we have to at least ask ourselves, would the Europeans be as eager to sanction China as they have been to sanction Russia? Um, and, and so this would be a conflict happening in a very different geography. Than the one we're witnessing in Ukraine, and um, although I think mean, the unity of the Western approach to Russia is is striking and noteworthy and uh, commendable, um, it remains to be seen if that, that same level of unity would be achieved if uh, the crisis uh, were concerning uh, China and Taiwan and the United States.
2: That's certainly a fair question, Mark. Um, I also wanted to ask you uh, about Joe Biden's policy on tariffs on China. He's publicly debated uh, Mm. the possibility of scaling back on some of the tariffs implemented by the Trump administration. Are such policy moves off the table in your opinion now?
3: It probably makes them politically harder to do, even though economically, I think they make a lot of sense, right? Because the purpose was To generate leverage to pursue uh, sort of other changes in the Chinese economy, and but we're three years into tariffs, and I don't think there's been a single change, right, uh, in 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 the aspects that were targeted. So in that sense, the tariffs haven't been a great policy tool. Um, uh, There's also it's also probably one of the few tools he could manipulate to lower inflation. um, uh, Economists and folks like you guys probably have a better sense of what that actual impact would be. Uh, but it is at least a policy tool that he can pull um, or a lever, policy lever he can pull to do something about uh, inflation. And so um, I, I think there are good reasons uh, to reduce the tariffs because um, they've been either counterproductive or or have contributed to inflation. But politically, I think it would be seen now right, as caving uh, to China in some way or rewarding China for its belligerence across the strait. And so therefore, it's probably off the table at least until after the midterms.
2: I, I wanted to allow for a final question from the audience to you, Taylor, before you leave the discussion. And it's from Ralph uh, asking you, what have China and Taiwan learned from the Russian invasion of Ukraine?
3: I think uh, Taiwan has probably learned that uh, um, or the very impressive lesson of sort of the will of the Ukrainians to survive, right? And to fight for the survival of their country. Ukraine is a much, its not as weak relative to Russia as China, Taiwan is to China, but nevertheless, um, uh, this this uh, sort of will to fight, I think, is remarkable in Ukraine. Defied uh, the expectations of many analysts before it occurred. who thought that Ukraine would collapse pretty quickly, and quite the opposite has occurred, right? And so, I think there's great potential for Taiwan, uh, looking at the lessons of Ukraine, to do much more to defend itself to defend itself quite robustly. Uh, with anti, with sort of mobile anti ship and anti anti air systems, which would really frustrate uh, China's uh, military operations, especially in a very large amphibious assault. I think, from China's standpoint, uh, there are lots of questions. I think, effectively, though, they would ask just how ready the PLA really is, um, right? Uh, and uh, has corruption really been rooted out uh, as much as they have tried to do so? Because uh, one lesson. Uh, we 're learning from uh, uh, sort of Russian operations in Ukraine and sort of the continued depths of of corruption in that military and the consequences it has for military effectiveness. I think they would also be asking whether or not um, the reforms they put in place in two thousand and fifteen have created the nimble kind of force that is really able to conduct high intensity uh, joint operations. I think it 's important to bear in mind that what Russia has tried to do in ukraine in sort of the scope of modern military operations is really the most straightforward, right? Surging forces across the land border, uh, primarily uh, conducting uh, combined operations within your ground forces, not joint operations combining air, sea, uh, and ground forces. What China would want to do across the strait would be orders of magnitude more complicated. And so seeing the Russians uh, face this challenge uh, in conducting relatively simple operations, even though they've adapted to some degree I think would probably be a, a pretty bracing lesson for China to think about with respect to the capability of the PLA, which despite two decades of massive recapitalization in terms of new platforms such as stealth fighters and, 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 and surface combatants and so forth, the open question is just how well can that equipment operate it and to what effect. And so I think that will probably induce some caution uh, and uh, contribute to uh, the maintenance of deterrence across the Strait.
2: Taylor Fravel, Professor of Political Science and Director of the Security Studies Program at MIT, thanks so much for joining the uh, daily briefing today.
3: Thanks so much for having me, a pleasure to be with you.
2: Tony, back to you and uh, the discussion on financial markets. It's been a crazy day. We've seen this massive move in interest rates. Um, What do you make of this move in interest rates and the spillovers potentially to the commodity space and the equity space in the days ahead?
1: Yeah, I feel like that, you know, there it's really hard to break down right now, Andreas. There's not a lot of correlation in the tape. Things are kind of flying off in their own direction. It feels like the bond market is still reacting to the CPI and PPI data at some some level, or at least the fact that the bond market likely overshot the recession on the downside and then got this upside surprise in the inflation data and is now adjusting. Um, it's also adjusting at a very precarious time for the crude oil market. Um, that's, that's like front and center for me right now, because, you know, crude oil is testing 200 day moving average, which is a big deal for us technicians. Um, you know, on the bull side, we've still got a lot to hang our hat on, you know, gas, gas buddy says that gas local gasoline demand is literally at record levels through nine and a half million barrels of gasoline a day, well above, um, well above historic averages. Um, we've got, you know, still firmly backwardated markets, but we've got them much looser than they were say a month, a month and a half ago. So what we've got is the sort of crack spread backing off from the mid fifties to 38. Um, we've got Sept diesel fuel backing off from $10 to $4. While $4 is still massively backwardated, it has now been cut in half since its widest prices. So naturally you see pricing backing off. Um, We see the gasoline market testing the 200 day moving average for the first time this year, I believe. So, you know, the market, the, the oil markets are respecting the fact that the financial markets are pricing in that recession. It looks like they may have priced them in a little bit too far. Um, it looks like the equity market is still sort of treading water around here, but, you know, more likely downside maybe to come. Um, it could be a situation where we have one of those ripping bear market rallies um, if if commodities can get on their feet here with this move higher in yields. But it's really tricky right now, Andreas. There's a lot of uh, it feels like there's a lot of risk coming out in the wash and the markets aren't really going very far. So it's really hard to get a read on
2: Yeah, definitely, Tony. I wanted to bring in the tweet of the day from uh, the commodities expert, Javier Blas. Um, He refers to German electricity prices reaching 1,000% of usual levels. Uh, And I read a German study today (laughs) that concluded that A rise of the electricity price of a 1,000% will only shave off 3% of the overall electricity demand. Uh, So it basically shows that the the demand for energy is super inelastic. And that's a point you've made before on this show as well, Tony, in relation to gasoline and oil. What's your take on energy prices into a potential recession, given uh, the information that we got from Javier earlier today?
1: Thank you very much for noticing that, Andreas. You know, it, it feels like, you know, it, it we are, whether we like it or not, the markets are telegraphing a bit of stagflation, right? It, it's, it, it's impossible to get away from, you know, oil prices have sort of remained, you know, in the upper end of their rally range, at least while base metal prices have collapsed, lumber has collapsed, you know, so some of that more cyclical stuff backed way off. And, you know, as we've been saying about that pricing elasticity, it hasn't happened in the oil markets yet they remain backwardated they remain tight um you know we're getting news like we just got out of marathon petroleum right the, the biggest american refiner they made more money in the second quarter than they did in any other year as a refiner right their 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 quarter was up um they reported a $10.61 quarter versus $70 $7.71 estimates and versus year-over-year comps of $0.67 cents a share, right? So year-over-year comps, their, their uh, p and is up about 1,500%. The stock is up 4% today, recovering all the mo- major moving averages. So there's plenty of things going on to hang your hat on in this market. If you, if you listen to the CEO, he said that diesel demand has softened due to um, less trucking volumes. And I feel that that's what that sort of diesel spread indicates where it's backed off its highs. But he also said that tight fuel supplies and strong demand are absolutely going to continue. Right. So he he offers a very neutral, you know, statement about the oil market, one for each bull, one for a bear. And you know, you're gonna have to decide for yourself here. So I think that as long though, generally as this tightness does persist, as long as we see indicators like, for example, open interest in gasoline at the lowest level it's been in 10 years it doesn't seem to me like there's a massive spec long position in the crude oil markets that we've got a bullseye on that we're looking for to, you know, absolutely heave. It feels like rather that a lot of the speculation has left this market because maybe because they don't know which direction it's going in. The market remains tight, but the economic indicators are slowing down. So maybe that's a plan for slower gasoline demand, which the IEA continues to tell us hasn't happened much yet. So, you know, the oil market is at a really critical juncture here. If if all those spreads should continue to back off below their 200-day moving averages and really just turn the trend upside down, I'll be prepared to exit a lot of my energy trades under this. That's That's true.
2: We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.
2: Biden uh, returned from his uh, Middle East round trip, was it a week ago or so? uh, And he basically claimed the victory saying that the Saudi Arabians would increase the capacity uh, to 30 million barrels a day of oil. To me, that was basically old news. Uh, You can find similar headlines uh, from earlier this spring, for example. Uh, And I think the key word here is capacity. It's not uh, necessarily equal to production per se. Uh, What's your take on on the whole supply situation after this uh, Biden trip? The market is still screaming for supply news, isn't it?
1: Well, you know, he came out, he came back from Saudi Arabia without production hikes and with COVID. So I wouldn't call that (laughs) trip a massive success on any level. Um, You know, as long as Saudi Arabia continues to raise prices to their Asian clients, as long as they manage OPEC, um, you know, OPEC just reported that their spare capacity was like 300,000 barrels last week when the market is expecting them to come up with like 1.2 million spare barrels of capacity, uh, barrels of spare capacity, excuse me. And that just proves that story that we've been telling all along is that OPEC doesn't have the spare capacity to really be able to clamp down on the price of crude oil, which is another reason that I kind of tend to think that it holds a dip around here. Maybe it dips to 90 or so, but I don't think that the bull market in oil is over per se. It's just maybe a time to, you know, readjust. And, you know, as long as the policy continues in the shape and form that we are in, as long as we continue to see Putin literally toy with Europe, you know, as, as we head into the fall here. I'm not taking my eye off of this trade you know natural gas has been really interesting it just backed all the way off to about 550 and then rallied to ten dollars here it backed off to moving average support at eight dollars everybody's got it written it off for dead because of this depression that we're pricing in if that doesn't happen and if the recession doesn't happen and if gas demand remains firm we're going to see gas through ten dollars we're going to see ammonia prices rally fertilizer prices rally more pressure on the food shortage crisis. I mean, you know, this commodity trade is not one that I'm willing to walk away from quietly, if that's fair.
2: Absolutely, Tony. Uh, If we look at the recent price action in in crude oil, it kind of seems stuck between inflationistas and recessionistas, leading to this very choppy, rangy trading. Is this recent trading range between, say, uh, the early 90s and, and just below $100 a barrel tradable? As you see it or would you just stay on the long side
1: you know for my purpose andreas i've been in the trade from uh from the long side for a long time now um i you know i'm down to really just exposure in energy equities you know i sold my oil most of my oil futures in the to the russian invasion rally for me this is a sort of do or die moment that the that the market really has to show me right there's nothing i can do at this point except respect my risk management policies and principles. Right now, it's gonna be up to the crude oil market. Gasoline's gonna have to hold the 200 day moving average. The SEPOX spreads are gonna have to hold their trend line supports and moving averages. And if they do, you will likely see oil back into the hundreds very quickly. You know, if this recession depression story and this economic vibe gets a lot stronger with yields remaining firm, You might see a $5 slide in the oil market, but like I said, without there being a large spec long to really shoot against, the the dips in oil have been dry heaves and I'm not really going to give up my, you know, my bullish attitude or my bullish posture towards the markets on a couple of closes below the 200 day moving averages, right? Things tend to overshoot in today's markets. We've got to give things a chance to play out unless trend really changes I'm sticking to the bull side of this trade. It's just a really precarious moment with literally everything across the complex on critical technical support. So it could be a spill through those levels at any minute and it could be a long grind where we hold here and next thing you know, one data point later and we've got a nice lift off of moving average support. So the jury's out right now, man, and I've got my hand on the buy and sell buttons simultaneously, I'm ready to trade.
2: I I also wanted to pick your brain on risk management today, Tony. Uh, And in relation to that, uh, I wanted to play a a soundbite for you from our new Academy product at Real Vision. It's from a debate between Jamie McDonald, Roger Hurst, and James Hildewell on risk management in these uncertain markets. So let's listen to the soundbite and get back to the risk management discussion.
1: Sure.
3: So, we've talked about what drives markets.
1: We've talked about charts and the way they – how important they are in in coming up with your idea. And we've spoken about the different asset classes and, like, the fundamentals of each and how they're correlated. So, now, what do we need to think about when it's time to put risk on, when it's time to put a trade on? So, what are the stuff
3: we need to discuss? I mean, you're looking at things like uh, what's your entry point – yeah. You know, where where do you do it? How do you approach that first um, action in the market? Um, then do you go all in at the beginning or do you mm. layer it? Where's your exit if you've got it wrong or you think you've got it wrong? Where's, where are you going to start taking profits? Mm-hmm. That's the basic level. But you've also got to sort of think about how that trade fits into your portfolio. Um, and time horizon, again, time horizon, which is how long is this trade on for? Is it based on the economics around the trade? Is it based upon your life experiences in what you need? Mm-hmm. Are you putting something on which you think is going to sit there earning you income for 10 years, or is this a two-month trade? Mm. So there's all those things around it, which are, you know, there's a whole bunch of variables from who you are, what you yeah. want out of it, through to that specific trade and the, the framework you're in it.
2: The... In- the entire Real Investing course is available for PLUS members at Buff uh, in the new Academy product at the Real Vision platform. Back to you, Tony. Uh, I mean, risk management is obviously important in these choppy markets. What's your take on risk management these weeks?
1: You know, everything for me is an individual trade, Andreas. You know, everything on the way into and the way out of the view matrix has got, you know, predefined levels where... I'm happy to risk levels where I'm going to have to get out, and I have levels in mind on on targets, right? So, right now, my book is um, kind of long only. I'm still looking for uh, really just a market dynamic retracement bounce. I think that's going to be tradable over the next several weeks. Um, but I'm really managing everything in its own basket, Andreas. You know, I look across my view matrix every day. I tighten up the stop loss levels and the take profit levels as they change, you know, as the charts morph and I really try to keep every line item its own risk management basket because, you know, the minute I let, um, you know, something that's losing money go because I've got something else that's winning money, next thing you know, that money's gone and the money that was compensating for it is gone and I have no money left at all and I'm very unhappy. So I find that when I manage things individually, whereas, okay, this trade is over time to get out. I I, I stick to that discipline and not worry about something else that maybe is working that day to offset it because that's the, that's the only times that I've gotten myself in serious trouble. It's, it's, you know, the volatility right now is such that, you know, you've really got to respect every major move in the markets today. The major move is a big move, higher in interest rates. So we'll see if that carries on for the rest of the week. But those are the kinds of things that are on my mind when it comes to risk management, Andres.
2: We have time for a uh, single question from the audience in relation to this energy debate. Uh, and it's from Jim Griffin asking you about the restart of the free port LNG um, port in, in the US. Do you think markets will price that restart in ahead of the actual event?
1: Yeah, that's a tricky one. You know, we've been wrestling with that headline for about a month now. You know, natural gas prices have already had a $5 range since we've come out with that headline, and now we're somewhere in the middle. So I'm looking to market for the markets to, yeah, sort of accept that headline. I'd like to see that facility get back online. I, I think that would be bullish for natural gas prices, and that rhymes with the chart right now, Andreas. You know, we just punched to a new high, settled back into support. And, you know, that facility coming back online on time to full capacity would definitely help the natural gas market get on its feet. It's definitely being, you know, kind of dragged higher um, sort of mentally with the Dutch TTF spot, not giving up any ground at all. It's still trading around 200 euro per megawatt hour. Um, You know, we're still on the lookout for what Putin's doing with the tap headlines. So this is still a trade that's still at the top of the radar screen for me.
2: As you know, Tony, I've made it my trademark to always conclude the daily briefing with a meme. Uh, and today I want to have a bit of fun around uh, Nancy Pelosi's personal trading book in relation to this Taiwan visit. So I posted this, this on Twitter yesterday saying, get some puts on the book, honey. I'm off to Taiwan tomorrow. I so let's see, whether, uh, let's see whether uh, Nancy's book is, is the one to follow this week. Tony, thanks Great. so much for joining us again today. It was a pleasure.
1: Great job, Andreas. Thank you very much.
2: And thank you everyone for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I will be back tomorrow with Peter Bouguer. See you there.
1: What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.